Good morning, everyone. Uh, please, will you open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles provided by the ushers, you'll find it on page 1043, 1043. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your book that you have given us. Thank you for the Holy Scriptures. Thank you for the way in which you have revealed yourself in these pages. And we pray, Lord, that as we look, look to you through your word this morning, that you would show yourself glorious, that you would open our eyes to behold your wonder and your beauty. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking together at Romans chapter 5 this morning, and we, as you can see, are jumping in to the middle of a book. And so we will be helped uh, to get a bit of handle, a bit of a handle on the context that we find ourselves within. It's never a good idea just to read a book from the midway point, not knowing what has come before. The epistles in the New Testament in particular uh, tend to be a long flow of thought, one long argument where each section builds upon those that have come before. And so as we're in chapter 5, uh, we need to at least have a cursory knowledge of what has taken place from chapter 1 through 4. And to do this, I want to share with you a short allegory that I hope will in large measure communicate the major ideas that have unfolded in the early chapters of Romans. So here it is. One day, in a pleasant coastal village, all was proceeding as normal. The markets were bustling with people as all went about their weekend rituals. Midway through the day, as the activity in the town was at its height, the civil servant who manned the lighthouse on the water's edge, who was nicknamed Nomo, came running down the main street frantically, exclaiming warnings. A storm is coming! A storm is coming! He shouted deliriously at the top of his lungs. A tsunami unlike one that's ever been seen. He went on to say, all will be destroyed. Leave everything behind and take refuge now. The storm is fast approaching. As the crowds turned to chaos, everyone began running in every direction to seek cover under or behind something that might stand up to this storm. One person named Yusuf, who, prefer, who prefer, preferred the shortened version of his name, Yu, ran as fast as his feet would carry him, his eyes scanning to and fro for some sort of refuge. He found a, vac a vacant building and set his course in that direction. As he approached, he saw a worn-out sign over the door which read, Morality. He said, or he went in and shut the door behind him. He inspected the frame of the structure and thought to himself, if the storm is as fierce as Nomo has said, then surely this building won't hold. He cast off his confidence in the building and sought another place where he might find cover. He saw a fortified brick wall on the edge of town with the word heritage spray painted on it. Once on the far side of the wall, he saw a huge crowd tucked there and knew that no hope of survival was to be found if he remained there. Off in the distance, you saw a man standing at the opening of an underground bark, a bunker. This man had built it himself in preparation for a day just like today. It was the only place in the whole region that would provide sufficient covering from the coming tide. Yu pumped his legs with all his might to get there. 
Once there, he saw that many had already filled the bunker, nearly to capacity. There was only enough room left for one last person to fit in and close the door behind them. The owner of the bunker stood there wearing a red shirt, looking at you and motioned with his arm for you to get in. You was overcome with emotion. He knew that if he were to take that last place, the man, the only one who had any real claim on the spot in the bunker, would be left outside to face the tsunami. After being insisted upon, you got into the bunker and closed the door behind him. And from the inside, he can see a carving on the door of a lamb draped in red cloth being led to a slaughter. It was then that you realized that the man had intended to face the storm the whole time. He planned for this day and made the bunker with the intention of filling it to capacity while he himself would face the wrath of the storm. Minutes later, the tidal wave hit. The village was leveled and uh, the village was leveled. There was not one survivor except those in the bunker. The wrath of the storm had passed, and the man who built the underground refuge sacrificed his own life so that you could find refuge in his bunker. After the hours of heavy storm, the activity outside receded. Those in the bunker emerged to find nothing but a bright, shining sun and the weather at complete peace. Let's read our passage together. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul opens this passage with the word therefore, intending to communicate to us that he's building upon what he's said before. He has laid out in the early chapters of Romans a grim picture of humanity uh, that all people, all people indiscriminately have rebelled against God. And because God is righteous, because God is just, and because God is good, he must bring a penalty upon lawbreakers. And so Paul addresses the various things that people might seek to take refuge in and to show them insufficient, inadequate. Some put their trust in morality, in the works that they've done. Others, in their heritage, their knowledge of the scriptures, their upbringing, and yet Paul shows that when nomo, Greek for law, when the law of God speaks to us, it lays us all bare before God. It accuses all of us of having fallen short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3. It accuses us, as in Romans 1, that God has revealed himself. He's revealed his attributes. And yet we have chosen rather to worship the created things rather than the one who created them. And then in chapter 3, Paul makes this glorious turn. After showing that the law is insufficient, and morality is insufficient, and heritage is insufficient, he turns 
to Christ. And he says, God has made a way apart from the law for one to be justified before God, to be accounted righteous, to be declared clean in the sight of God. And that is through the life and the death and the resurrection, the perfect life, the bunker that Jesus has built on the merit of his own righteousness. Through that, that life and then that sacrificial death so that we can find a place in that place of refuge. Through that, Paul declares that justification is to be found, that righteousness before God can be had. And then he gets here, and he goes a little bit further. He pushes into the glorious benefit, implication of this justification. The forgiveness of sins is a wonderful, wonderful gift, but it is not an end unto itself. God must forgive our sins in order that we might have peace with him. He must cleanse us in order that we might dwell with him in his kingdom of righteousness. Revelation 21, 27 says, no unclean thing, no, no one who does what is false or detestable will be in the kingdom, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so the Lamb gives his life in order that the names of sinful people might be written there and cleansed by his righteous life and his sacrificial offering so that we can have peace with God. Now, if you were listening carefully to the passage as I read it, you'll notice that there was a lot of corporate language. The term we or our is, is uh, stated seven times in these short verses. So there's a corporate understanding and there's a certain body of people that these truths apply to. And so I want to speak a word for a moment to you who may be here this morning and don't know the Lord, have not turned from sin, have not put your trust in the sacrifice that the Savior has made, have not surrendered to him as Lord. These promises, these implications, these benefits of his work on our behalf do not apply to you who are outside of Christ. In the opening of his letter, Paul states who he is addressing these realities to. In chapter 1, he says, To you who are loved by God and called to be his saints, those who are his set-apart people, those who have been forgiven and set apart for his purpose, who have given their lives for his glory and his purposes. But there's good news. As you listen, as you hear the gospel unfolded before you this morning, know that through simple and humble repentance and faith, every single one of these promises, every single one of these benefits can be yours today and forever by God's grace. So Paul here lets us know what is the result of our justification after having unfolded it. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this justification happened as unfolded in earlier chapters through the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. But here we see how it comes to us, how we appropriate it. And it says here that it happens by faith. That by faith we appropriate the objective historical work of Christ into our own lives, into our own souls. 
And you might wonder, as I have, why did God choose faith as the means? Out of all things, I read years ago in a great book uh, uh, called All of Grace, and it's asked that very question. Why faith? Why not love or patience or joy? Why does God choose faith as the appropriate means by which his salvation comes to us? And in that book, uh, the author, Charles Spurgeon, uh, gives an illustration of a poor beggar. And he says, as a poor beggar sits on a, a curb begging alms, and a man with money in his pocket walks by and offers him the money, the beggar reaches out his empty hand, takes hold of the money, and he puts it in his own pocket. The beggar knows he didn't make his hand, he didn't earn or deserve the money that came to him, but the hand simply is the means of appropriating it. The hand is the appropriate means of, of receiving it from another. Spurgeon says, I would not give it to his elbow or his knee or his foot, because those are not appropriate means by which one receives, but the hand. And so, in like manner, faith in the mind is the hand that extends, that understands it did not create itself. It did not earn or deserve the thing that it's receiving, but it extends to lay hold and receives and gives all glory and praise to the one who gave it. And so by faith, we lay hold of the work of Christ that has taken place in history on our behalf. And the result is peace. Peace with God. The Bible declares this epic battle that has been taking place from the beginning, in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, we see that humanity has turned and rebelled from God, has been at odds, not just alienated, but in Romans we're described as having hostility towards God, hatred towards God. We take the breath that he gives us, and instead of using it for his praises, we take the strength that he gives us, and instead of using it for his purposes, we use it for our own. And so there was a need of peace to be made, of restoration. This word justified is sometimes translated in our Bible, reconciled, where two opposing parties are brought together in peace. And this is the greatest gift. This is what we were made for. As human beings, we exist to live in a peaceful, loving communion with our Creator. And the means by which God has provided is the gospel of Jesus so that that may happen. Now this peace is great. This peace, uh, Paul speaks in earlier chapters that there is coming a day where the glory of God will be revealed in its fullness. And those who are outside of Christ, for them that is a terrible day. But after proclaiming the gospel in chapter 3 and 4, here we see that in Christ, this day is for us a day of rejoicing. When God is glorified in his fullness, when God is revealed at the last day, that is for us who are in Christ a great day of joy. And so we have peace with God because of what Christ has done. Paul has lifted our eyes to the heaven and helped us to see what has resulted as a, as a consequence of Jesus' work. But right now, we live on this earth. We live in a real world with real problems and real challenges and real difficulties, real temptations and real trials. And so Paul, in verse 2, brings our gaze back down to heaven, or back down to earth, sorry. 
And he shows us the present day effects of that hope of future peace with God. He says in verse 2, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So that future hope of peace, that confidence that we will have a future pleasant meeting with God on the last day has very real and tangible implications for our lives today. The first of which is that we have grace needed to stand day by day, to stand firm, to stand in the will of God, to stand in the honor of God in our lives. Now it says that this faith, this grace comes by faith. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So this grace is a free gift that God has given us. And yet he has made appropriate means, means of laying hold of and appropriating this grace to us. Think of a father who puts a million dollars in a bank account for his son. He's freely put it there for his son's use. And yet for his son to access it, he needs the debit card. He needs the address of the bank to, to lay hold of what has been stored up for him. And so in Colossians it says that all the riches of wisdom and knowledge have been stored up for us in Christ. And here we read is that by faith we appropriate, we have access to this grace in which we stand in the Lord. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And as we stand, our assurance grows that that future peace is truly ours. As we stand in the Lord now, as we live for him now, as we appropriate by faith his truth now, we grow in our confidence. And that happens as we study scripture. Later in this letter, Paul will say that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so as the word of God enters our soul, it shapes and fashions our beliefs, our convictions, our ambitions. It imparts to us the mind and the will of Christ. Jesus said in John 8.32, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. So it is in the truth of God's word imparted to us through the scriptures that this faith that he grants, is strengthened, is shaped, is informed in such a way that we find strength to stand in his grace. Now, as we continue to look forward and anticipate that great day of peace and true and full reconciliation with God, we walk through a valley on the way. It is not a bed of roses, cloud nine from here till the end. But we know, we live in real life, we have real difficulties. And so Paul doesn't want us to think uh, that this truth, this glory, is, is only for the future. The peace that God gives can only be applied at the end and has no real bearing on our lives today. Jesus himself, our Savior, is described as a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. So Paul here in 
Verse 3 says, not only that, not only do we rejoice in the future hope of God's full revealed glory and our peaceful meeting with him, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Easy for you to say, Paul. You're sitting in some ivory tower somewhere, penning these letters and just shipping them out to churches all around the world. Easy for you to say. Was it? Was he sitting in an ivory tower when he said this? Was his life a bed of roses? When Paul says this, we need to understand his life. We need to understand what type of a man this is coming from. This is someone who later in this very letter says that he experiences at times unceasing anguish and sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says that he was so utterly burdened beyond belief that he despaired of life itself. He writes letters from prisons. He accounts in, to the Corinthians the numerous trials that he experienced, shipwreck and beating and sickness and persecution. So this is not a person sitting off in an ivory tower telling us, rejoice in your suffering. And this is also not someone who is promoting some sort of masochism that we should enjoy and glory in our sufferings for suffering's sake. But Paul here intends to bring our sufferings, the difficulties that we experience in this life, in our pilgrimage, into the greater context of God's providence and God's purposes in our lives. So here's what he says. We rejoice in our sufferings, and here's why. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Think of a farmer uh, who has a plot of land outside of his house, and that plot of land, uh, the food that's grown there is what sustains him and his family. But this farmer, he has a severe allergy to the sun. And so in the springtime, as the sun is shining in full brilliance, he goes out to sow his field. And as he goes out, his body, as it always does, reacts to the sun. A rash breaks out over his whole body. His joints are inflamed. He's in severe pain. And yet as he sows that field, he sows with joy, glad that the sun is out in its full brilliance. Not because of the effect it's having on him. He doesn't like the effect it's having on him. And yet he understands that as the sun shines, it produces vapor from the rivers and the lake. And then the vapor produces clouds. And then the clouds produce rain. And that rain produces the harvest that will sustain him and his family. So he doesn't rejoice in the sun in and of itself, but he understands its purpose in the greater picture and therefore rejoices and will embrace the difficulty that comes along with sowing his field in pain because he knows that it is necessary for the harvest. And so Paul seeks to do that for us. He brings our sufferings into a context. And throughout the New Testament, we see all sorts of sufferings described uh, regarding Christ and his disciples. There are external sufferings, mocking, reviling, false charges. There are physical sickness, injury, beatings. There are internal sufferings, discouragement, hope deferred, demonic oppression, there are relational sufferings, loneliness, alienation, abandonment, the lostness of loved ones. 
And so Paul, in his encouragement to the churches in the book of Acts, chapter 14, he says, Through many trials, we must enter into the kingdom of God. And he was living that even as he said it. But these sufferings have a glorious purpose in our lives. I wonder, is it possible for someone to be convinced without the shadow of a doubt that they have a rightful expectation of peace with God on the last day and yet not in fact have it? Certainly that's true. We read in Matthew 7, Jesus tells a story of people who on the last day come to him and say, Lord, Lord, we did many works in your name. We performed miracles in your name. And Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. And so this suffering in this context acts as a constant check on our soul, on what we value and what we most value. Picture a man who won the lottery, $100 million Powerball lottery, and he's seeing the numbers come forward one by one, and he's seeing, I have that number, I have that number, and he realizes he has every number, and he is the winner of this $100 million lottery. And in the days that follow, before he goes to cash in his ticket, he checks his ticket a thousand times to make sure he didn't get it wrong to make sure he heard every number right, to make sure his ticket is authentic and the real deal. This prize is almost too good to believe, and so he wants to be sure that he is the rightful recipient of it. In a way, that is the function, at least, of suffering in our lives. That God has stored up for us, for those who believe, for those who have been justified by faith, God has stored up such riches in Christ. Almost too good to be true. And as we go through this life and we walk through mountaintops and valley lows, we are constantly being checked. And in God's kindness, he's helping us to see what is either there or not there. Whether we truly love and have been changed by Christ or whether we will depart it is better that we know that now than later. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells a parable of a sower who sows seeds. And there are different responses to the seed based on the soil it lands on. Some reject it outright and it, nothing grows. Some receive the seed and a plant sprouts up quickly but has no root. And as the sun shines down, it is scorched for its lack of root. And then others receive the word and bear forth a plant. And that plant over time bears forth fruit. Jesus calls that the good soil. And so as God walks with us, providing us grace to stand day by day through the various sufferings that we may encounter, he is helping us to glory all the more in the fact that he has made us good soil, that he has made us true recipients of his word, true believers of his word, truly hoping in his word, regardless of life circumstances, convinced that Christ and to know him is better than life itself or any comforts that may accompany it. 
So this suffering produces patience. When I was a kid, my mom would make dinner. Uh, the wonderful aroma would fill the home. My mom's the best chef in the world. And uh, at times, I would be so eager to eat dinner because it smelled so good that I would run up and ask her for samples. Can I just have a little bit before dinner time? And my mom's the best, so sometimes she would say yes. But other times, she would tell me to wait. No, wait until dinner time. How ridiculous would it be if when she told me, no, I can't have samples, I need to wait until dinner time in half an hour, if I just said, forget it, all right, I don't want dinner anymore then, I'm not hungry anymore, I'm not eating. That would be ridiculous. Of course not. When she told me that, my anticipation only grew. My hunger deepened because I smelled the sweet aroma of the meal that was coming. I knew for certain it was coming in 30 minutes, and so I started watching the clock and waiting for the day or for the moment. It bred patience in me because the thing I was waiting for was so appealing to me. And that's what's happening here. Suffering produces patience as the hope of God is held before us and as he walks with us in this life, our anticipation grows as we wait the long-awaited Savior as we sing about. Now this patience has another effect. The suffering produces patience and the, the patience produces character. Or I think it might be better translated proven character. Patience leads to proven character. So what's being uh, pictured here is that not merely a verbal assent, a verbal ongoing assent to the gospel is what we ought to find our confidence in, but rather a growing conformity to the image of Christ, responding to events in a way that reflects the mind of Christ. So what's pictured here is not the person who maybe at one time had an excitement for the things of God and sought to live obediently, but now is kind of just coasting along, but still holding fast to, well, praise God, heaven's coming. Praise God, the suffering will be done soon. No, here it's saying that in God's providence, in God's purposes, the suffering ought to produce patience, and that patience is a patience as we are being conformed to the image of Christ, as the character of Christ is being proven in us. I read a story one time about the artist Michelangelo. Uh, I'm not sure if it is true. It, it was attributed to him, and I've heard it a number of times. Uh, Michelangelo is known for, among other things, his famous sculpture of David. And one person asked him after he had made this masterpiece, this is spectacular. How were you able to make such a thing of beauty? And the quote that's attributed to him is this. It's easy. I took a raw piece of marble and I chiseled away everything that didn't look like David. Through the winds of trials and the chisel of suffering, God is revealing the life of Christ in us in order that our confidence may grow, that we are truly his, and that we truly do and ought to have a hope of peace. And so this suffering produces patience, and this patience produces proven character. And as we see the character of God forming in us over time, as we look into the mirror of God's word, and we see ourselves increasingly reflect what we see, 
we gain confidence that the Spirit of God is truly at work in us, and he's preparing us to meet with God. And so it gives us great hope, which is what Paul says. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We look in the scriptures, and we see God at work in our lives, changing us. We're reacting to things in ways that we wouldn't have prior to Christ. We're reacting to things in ways that we wouldn't have even five years ago in Christ. As God is maturing us, we see more of his life in our soul. We gain hope. We, we say, I'm real. I'm actually a child of God. I indeed have been born again by the Spirit and become a new creature. I would not have responded like this to this trial had it not been for the life of God in me. I have passed through the fires of refinement and have come out the other end with the glory of Christ shining upon me. This gives us great hope. But the skeptic, or even our own doubting heart, might call into question this hope. This hope is unseen. You've never seen this God. You've never seen this Jesus. You've read about it in a book, but how do you know it's real? It's all just ethereal. It's, it's all just a means of making peace with death and appeasing your own conscience. But Paul here refutes that way of thinking by rooting our hope in this last verse in the historical death and resurrection of Jesus. So here he says in verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And in this context, if you look a few verses down in verse 8, he gives a definition of God's love as he's understanding it right now. Verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this love that prompted this good news, that prompted our justification, which leads to our peace and our hope, is rooted in the historical, objective life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That was the greatest act of love in all of history. The holy and innocent one crossing over enemy territory and joining our camp yet remaining unstained by our rebellion, then offering himself as the peace treaty between God and man. 1 Timothy 2 says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so this historical truth, this objective truth, does not put us to shame. And us in particular who have received it, because the Spirit has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love of God has been poured into our hearts. After returning to heaven, Jesus sends his Spirit. And his Spirit communicates and applies all the merits and all the benefits of Christ's work to the hearts of his people. And so it's by the Spirit's illumination that we can say, Christ died, and he died for me. My name was written on his hands when he suffered and bled and died. I am the lost sheep that he left the confines of heaven to seek out and to save. I am the one for whom God, at great cost to himself, purchased a seat at the heavenly banquet. 
That's the Spirit's work, taking this objective truth in history and applying it to the hearts of people throughout the generations. That is the great benefit of believers today. That is the most wonderful act of love. I want to read a little bit of an extended quote from a book that speaks on the love of God. So listen to this. It is a passage that has brought me great encouragement over the years. It is a special consideration to highlight the love of God in giving Christ, that in giving him, he gave the richest jewel in his cabinet, a mercy of greatest worth and most inestimable value. Heaven itself is not so valuable and precious as Christ is. He is the better half of heaven. And so the saints say of him, Whom have I in heaven but thee? Ten thousand thousand worlds, says one. As many worlds as angels can number and then a new world of angels can multiply would not all be the bulk of a balance to weigh Christ's excellency, love, and sweetness. Oh, what a fair one. What an only one. What an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Christ. Put the beauty of 10,000 paradises like the Garden of Eden into one. Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetnesses, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet, it should be less to that fair and dearest well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. Christ is heaven's wonder and earth's wonder. Now for God to bestow the mercy of mercies, the most precious thing in heaven or earth upon poor sinners, and as great as, and lovely, as excellent as his son was, yet not to account him too good to bestow upon us, what manner of love is this? That is what the Spirit does. Takes this glorious, well-beloved Christ, the fairest of all, and communicates him to our souls, that in the depths of our hearts we hold fast to him, we walk with him. The Spirit applies the truth of the gospel to the heart of the believer, and with it, an abiding knowledge of peace with God through Jesus Christ. This future hope breeds present-day rejoicing and anticipation of our seeing God face to face and produces grace in our souls to endure all things for the sake of Christ. We have peace with God both now and forever and joy inexpressible and full of glory in light of this. Let's pray. What a joy it is to be at peace with you, Lord. Thank you for making the way of peace open to us through Jesus. Grant us to walk in the grace and stand in the grace that you have given us access to. In Jesus' name, amen.